So tonight we are talking about the parousia, which is a word, a Greek word, that means presence, arrival, or official visit. And when you hear that word used in theological discussions, we're talking about the presence, the arrival, or the official visit of Jesus, specifically the second coming of Jesus, his return to the earth. Um, Just as a little bit of a disclaimer, because our Wednesday night group is a, a faithful group, if you were here about a year ago when we were wrapping up uh, our 66 series where we spent one night each uh, in each book of the Bible, we talked about a lot of these things we're going to talk about tonight when we talked about First uh, and Second Thessalonians. Those are letters that Paul wrote to churches who were very confused and had questions about the return of Christ, and so we talked about a lot of these issues then. And then we talked about some of these issues also when we ended with the book of Revelation. And so if some of these things sound familiar to you, it's because in the last year or so we've talked about them. Uh, but when you're going through systematic theology, you want to cover all the ground that's there to cover. Uh, this is a, a topic that you need to discuss. And what we're talking about tonight, the parousia, or the second coming, falls under the broader heading of eschatology. And that's a word that I've used a couple of times tonight. It just means the study of the last things or the study of the end. And there's lots and lots of different things we could talk about under this broad heading of eschatology. We could do 20 weeks just on eschatology if we wanted to. And we're going to boil it down or try to boil it down to two weeks. Tonight we're talking about the return of Christ. And next week, which will be our last Wednesday night, we're going to talk specifically about heaven and hell and what the Bible has to say about heaven and hell. Uh, So let's start with a story. And let's start with a a story about a Baptist preacher named William Miller. He was born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts in 1782. He was raised a Baptist. And as a young man, sort of in his teenage years, best I can gather, he actually left his Baptist upbringing and he became a a deist. He went away from sort of a formal uh, religious structure in the Baptist church and went to more of this idea that I believe there's a God, but he's just out there. It's like he's made the world like a watch, and he wound it up, and it's kind of doing its own thing now, and he's not really involved in any hands-on way. And a lot of our founding fathers adhered to that worldview, and he sort of got enamored with that for a time. And then before too long, he kind of drifted back uh, to his Baptist roots and his Baptist upbringing. And I read a story about him this week I've never read. He was uh, a member of a Baptist church, And the pastor was going to be out of town. And so the pastor talked to William and said, what I'd like you to do is read my sermon. I'm going to write it. I'm going to give it to you. And I want you to stand up on Sunday and read it to everybody. And he agreed to do that. And as the story goes, he's sitting there reading the pastor's sermon and realizes he's not converted. He's not a true follower of Jesus Christ. And reading that sermon as he's basically preaching it, Uh, verbally to the congregation, he sort of has a conversion experience right there on the spot in his own sermon. So kind of an interesting story. Um, As soon as that happened, he got interested in a lot of different things. And one of the things he got really interested with was biblical prophecy. And specifically, he got very interested in trying to sort of decode Bible texts and come up with timelines and figure out dates. And he especially tried to work out of the book of Daniel which is a difficult book because it's an apocalyptic book. There's a lot of things in Daniel that we take seriously and we interpret them seriously, but you don't take them literally because it's apocalyptic literature. And we've talked about some of that back in our previous series. So he uses the book of Daniel and he comes up with this timeline. And basically he decides Jesus is going to come back sometime towards the end of 1843 and the beginning of 1844. And at first, he kind of just gives a broad little range. And he says, somewhere in this window, Jesus is going to come back. So he's talking to people, teaching people, preaching, and he's got sort of a a group of followers that's growing, and people are excited about this. And he gives them this window, and he says, Jesus is coming back. And so you can imagine when the window opens, like the first date he gave them, everybody sort of perks up and gets excited and Well, nothing happens on the first day, so you say, well, we we got time, we got a few months, but it's coming, and everybody's so excited. And basically, you got to the end of that window, and you know, because you're here, nothing happened. 
And Miller said, you know what, I'm going to go back to the drawing board and I'm going to crunch the numbers and I'm going to look at Daniel and reinterpret some things. And he went back and he returned not too long later. Uh, remember, he said 1843 to 44. And he came back and he said, it's going to be October 22nd, 1844. That's the day. For real, 100%, Jesus is coming back. And depending on who you believe historically... He had somewhere between 50,000 and 500,000 people that you could label as his followers. People who sort of believed that's the day. And he's publishing this in newspapers all across the country and people are talking about it. And um, they're, they're starting to call this movement the Millerite movement. And he's got this day set. And people got so excited about it, they bought into it. They quit their jobs. They sold their homes. They cashed in their savings. They killed the fatted calf. I mean, everything. They were ready to go. They went out on hilltops on the night that Jesus was supposed to come back. And they gathered together with their friends. And they sat there and they waited and they had worship services. And history now remembers that day, that night, as the great disappointment. Because thousands and thousands of people across the country went out hoping and anticipating and really knowing that Jesus was about to come home and it didn't happen. And I don't think you need me to tell you that you don't want to go down in history with an event known as the Great Disappointment. That's not how you want to be remembered, but that's how Miller is remembered. And, you know, Miller was like a lot of these guys that maybe you've heard of who, who predict dates. They just can't stop. They cannot stop. And they throw a date out there and it doesn't happen. And they throw another one and another one. And they cannot stop doing it. And some of his followers obviously faded away and some of them didn't. In fact, you may have heard of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That movement began as sort of an offshoot of William Miller. And you can trace their beginnings all the way back. And especially in their early history, they definitely loved to pick dates. And it's going to be this date. No, it's going to be this date. No, it's going to be this date. Even today, a popular thing in the Seventh-day Adventist movement is they will blitz a town or a community with flyers on the door or advertisements, and they'll say, we're going to have a prophecy conference at such-and-such hotel or meeting room or whatever, and you can come, and it's free, and they don't put anything on there about who they are or what denomination or what church. They just want you to come. And I've had church members ask me about those when it's happened in my neighborhood, and I've said, well, I'll go with you. Let's go. And let's listen. And you go and you listen and you say it's the same old stuff. Like you are William Miller. It's the same stuff that people have been saying for hundreds and hundreds and really thousands of years. There's a great quote and I'm going to share it with you. It always gets attributed to Martin Luther. And I did some digging on it this week because I've heard people question it. And I'm almost certain historians are almost certain Martin Luther never said this. It is not written in any of his books, any of his sermons, but people always say Luther said this. Whether or not he said it or not, I like the idea. The quote is this, if I knew the world would end tomorrow, I'd plant an apple tree today. Meaning, even if you knew, you've got to just go on with life. You've got responsibilities and obligations today. And even if you knew, you don't just get to cash it in and put it on cruise control But you've got to think about what your obligations and your responsibilities are today. And so we want to try to be responsible as we think about this. And I know that I've joked with you the last couple of weeks about Corey or me. We're going to give you a date or we're going to figure it out. And that's not going to happen. So if you came here only for that reason, feel free to just leave and you won't hurt my feelings. But no date tonight. What do you need to know? Several things you need to know. The second coming of Christ is mentioned often in the New Testament. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament. There are 318 references to the return of Christ. So not every chapter has one, but on average, there's more than one per chapter. It's something that gets brought up a lot. You can't read the New Testament and have a fully orbed theology or systematic theology and not say something about the return of Jesus. For example, Jesus clearly taught that he was going to return to the earth. We're not going to look some of these up right now. We're going to look some of them up as we go. Um, But Jesus clearly taught this. And I gave you an example. Just one from Matthew, one from Mark, one from Luke, and one from John. B, on your outline here, 
other New Testament authors clearly taught that Jesus was going to return to the earth. This is not just Jesus saying this, but it's all throughout the New Testament. And then lastly, while we're filling in blanks, Jesus often used the title Son of Man to refer to himself. He especially used it when he was talking about his return. Very common when he's talking about his second coming to refer to himself as the Son of Man. Let's look a few of these up. Let's just go to Acts 1. We're going to go through these super, super quick. So you can listen or you can try to keep up. Acts 1, 11. This is Luke writing this story. Uh, They're gazing up into heaven and there's two angels there. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Flip over to Philippians 3.20. This is a passage we looked at not too long ago on Sunday morning. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for Jesus to come from heaven. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Luke talked about it. Paul talked about it. Author of Hebrews talked about it. Look at James chapter 5, verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Flip over just a page or two and look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is Revealed. There's going to be some revealing of his glory when he comes back. Flip over and look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then you can look at Revelation 22. We'll turn to that one in a little bit, and we'll catch that one later trying to show you that just about all the way through the New Testament, you're reading about the return of Jesus. The only, I use this word with reservation, the only major book in the New Testament that doesn't mention Christ's return is the book of Galatians. And Paul is so ticked off at the Galatians, he's pretty laser focused on what he wants to say. The other books that don't mention the return of Jesus are Second John, Third John, and Philemon, and they're very, very short books. Every other book in the New Testament, every other author mentions it. I do want you to look at Daniel 7 so that you get the idea of what Jesus was trying to communicate when he kept calling himself the Son of Man. And when you read this this vision in Daniel and the identity and the description of the Son of Man and you hear Jesus call himself the Son of Man, it helps you realize why the religious leaders were so confused that this humble, know-nothing, uneducated, poor carpenter from Nazareth was calling himself the Son of Man. It didn't make sense in their minds because Daniel 7, 13, and 14 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And you get the irony when Jesus who owns nothing, is walking around saying, that's me. It's, it's almost comical to the religious leaders that he would assume that title. And we understand with the perspective of history, because we shouldn't assume that we would have been able to put all those pieces together better than anybody else did. He's talking about his second coming. It's not who he was in his humiliation and in his, his earthly ministry, but it's what he's going to be like, and it's who we're going to see at his return Uh, at the parousia okay secondly this should be obvious from what we discussed already no one knows the time of jesus's return no one knows i'll let you look up matthew 24 and mark 13 matthew 24 i'll just spoil it for you says no one knows that's what it says no one knows not even the son of man which bothers some people, and theologians kind of wrestle with that and think like, oh, how do you not know? You're, you're God, 
you're fully man. We've talked about the Trinity and the mystery of all of that. And I think the best, safest answer without sort of jumping off into the heretical end of the pool is just to say, in his incarnation, in taking on humanity, he didn't, uh, he didn't claim or he didn't hold right to all of his divine attributes or rights. And you see that in Philippians, that he humbled himself by becoming a servant. He became nothing by becoming this servant. And so he's saying, I don't know right now. And you say to yourself, well, does he know now when he's going to come back? And my answer would be, yeah, I think he knows. I don't think the father's up there like holding this big secret from the son and they don't know what's going on. But in his earthly ministry, he doesn't know. Matthew 24, no one knows. Mark 13 talks about signs. Jesus is giving these signs and he's telling people to watch. And people wrestle with that and they say, well, which one is it? Are we supposed to look for the signs or... Can we not know? Like, if he's given us the signs and telling us to watch, it seems like maybe we should be able to put some pieces together and figure it out. And uh, I think what Jesus is saying in Mark 13, he's talked about these signs, but then he says it's going to be surprising. It's going to come at a time you least expect it. Because he's talking about the world in general, right? And there's comparisons to this uh, later in the New Testament where you say, look, in Noah's day, everybody was having a great time. No one expected this big flood to come. It just sort of came out of nowhere for these folks. Noah knew what was coming. Didn't know exactly when, but he knew. And the same idea holds true for us in the return of Jesus. We know it's coming. We're not going to be totally shocked, but we don't know when. And the world is just going about its business and have no clue of what to expect or what to look for. So we'll fill in a few things underneath This idea of no one knows. The Gospels detail several signs that will precede Christ's return. Several signs that will precede Christ's return. And at this point, I finally want you to turn to Matthew 24. We keep talking about Matthew 24, and we need to look at it. There's way too much in Matthew 24 for us to talk about all of it. uh, But there's a few things here we need to mention. Matthew 24 is known as Jesus' apocalyptic discourse. It's way at the end of his life. He's really close to, to dying and rising from the dead. And he's in Jerusalem. He's actually walking out of Jerusalem with his disciples. And look how it starts. Verse 1, Jesus left the temple. He was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Basically, the disciples come and they say, This is a really cool building, right, Jesus? I mean, this is amazing. you got to be impressed. Verse 2, Jesus answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then verse 3 says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives. So they've walked out of the city, they've walked across the valley, they're on the Mount of Olives. Disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? And you can't understand anything that comes later in Matthew 24 and 25 if you don't understand that question. Because it's not just a question, it's a couple of questions. Right? The disciples are like the reporters in the presidential newsroom in the briefing. right? And the president says, you get one question, what is it? And every reporter asks four questions. Right? And they come, and they are not just asking one question at a time. They cannot restrain themselves. And they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. All these things are going to get knocked down. There's not going to be a stone left. You've got to tell us when that's going to happen. And what do we expect, and when should we be looking for the close of the age or the end of the age? And along with that, what will be the sign of your coming? They're asking a lot of different things. And in their minds at the moment, maybe the assumption is all those things are going to happen at the same time, but they didn't. And they won't. And so Jesus just starts to answer those questions and he starts to tell them some things. And you got to be really careful in what comes next because Jesus starts to throw some signs out there. Like there's going to be wars and there's going to be rumors of wars and there's going to be natural disasters. There's going to be all these things take place. And I'm telling you, when I've gone to these dopey little prophecy conferences in a hotel lobby, they sit there and they say, look, there was an earthquake today in Honduras and there's a war going on in Syria and there's this going on and that going on and all these crazy things. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Therefore, we know he's about to be here. Any moment, you got to get ready. Today, he's about to come. But if you look at this, in verse 8, 
Jesus talks about wars and famines and earthquakes. And he says these are the beginning of birth pains. It's just the beginning. And if you look just up above, he says, look, don't be alarmed. Verse 6. There's going to be false messiahs and false Christs and false prophets. Don't be alarmed by that. They're coming. It's going to happen. And then he goes down in verse 14 and he says, This gospel of the kingdom is going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And we talked about that word when we talked about missiology. To all people groups. The gospel is going to be proclaimed to all people groups and then the end will come. And people debate, has that happened yet? Has it not happened yet? When did it happen? When will it happen? But Jesus is basically saying, look, there's some things that are going to happen. But just because you see one of those things happen doesn't mean you need to sell your house and close your bank account and go wait on the hill. All of those things are going to take place and eventually the end is going to come. So he does give some signs. I'll also just mention this in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. He talks about some things like, um, you know, the, the sky, crazy things in the sky and signs in the heavens and moon turning to blood and crazy things like that. And today, we're not really versed in apocalyptic literature. We read that and we say, as scientific people, we say, well, he must be talking about like eclipses and comets and blood moons and all these things and we get so excited about it and teachers sell a lot of books hint hint they sell a lot of books when they write about this stuff because people buy it and they get so excited and they get royalties from those books and they keep selling those books and writing those books because we keep buying those books and Jesus is not talking about meteorological activity he's using words that describe big huge upheavals in the world power structure and he's saying things are going To be crazy. That's what all those words mean. They don't mean get your calendar out and chart when there's going to be a supermoon. And here comes a supermoon, so maybe that's the time Jesus is going to return. Just slow down and hit the brakes and don't freak out about these signs. Next, Jesus is not going to return until the Antichrist is revealed. Also known as the man of lawlessness. And really, in a study on the the return of Christ... I mean, there's a lot of things the New Testament says, but there's no clearer place to look than First and Second Thessalonians. So look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2. If you look in chapter 2, verse 1, you see what Paul's talking about in this paragraph. 2 Thessalonians 2.1, Paul is talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's talking about our being gathered together with him. Okay? And in Paul's mind, those two things go together. And he summarizes those two things, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. If you look at the end of verse 2, he describes that day as the day of the Lord. Both of those things happen on the day of the Lord. Jesus comes back, and we are gathered to him. And he says in verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and he exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Plenty of things we can debate in that verse. What we cannot debate is the day of the Lord, Jesus' return, and our being gathered to him will not happen. Paul says, don't let anybody fool you in this. It will not happen until the rebellion takes place and this man is exposed for who he is as the man of lawlessness or as I put him, uh, you filled in uh, the Antichrist. So Jesus will not return until the Antichrist is revealed. Okay, let's talk about Revelation 20. Turn to Revelation 20. We're going to fill these uh, bullet points in and talk about these things. Let's read it first before we fill it in. How about that? Revelation 20. Thinking about the millennium. There's three basic views. Uh, I really should say four, but we're just going to say three, and I'll explain the the distinction in one of them, of how this is going to play out. Revelation 20, verse 1, we're going to go to verse 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's where we get the word millennium. 
Millennium just means a thousand years. So for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and he shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer till the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. I believe the beast is the Antichrist, is the man of lawlessness, all referring to the same person. And not worshipped the beast or its image, had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So Revelation is connecting Jesus coming back, which we read about in chapter 19, with this thousand-year reign. And people debate this, and they argue it, and I'm going to give you the views, and I'm going to tell you why people hold to these views, and I'm going to tell you the one I believe in, and then we're going to go on, and we're all going to be friends, even if we disagree about this, right? Okay? There's a lot of things we've talked about on Wednesday nights that if you and I don't agree about, it's going to be awful hard for us to be friends, real friends. Like, if we don't agree on the doctrine of Scripture, we can be nice to each other, but it's going to be hard for us to be real friends, we don't agree on the doctrine of salvation or the person of Christ. We can be civil, but it's going to be very hard for us to have fellowship with each other. This is one issue when we talk about the millennium where we can respectfully disagree. And if you don't agree with me, then you can just go on living in ignorance and be wrong. And I'll still be nice to you. So here's the, here's the views. You ready? Number one, the amillennial position says the millennium is now. And it's going to end when Jesus returns. It's going, you're in it, okay? We just read about it. Congratulations, you made it to the millennium. And it's not a literal 1,000 years. 1,000 is just sort of a big round number, and John throws it out here to say it's going to be a long time. It's going to be a long time where Satan is bound, and the gospel is spreading, and you're in it now. And whenever it's over, it'll be over, and Jesus is going to come back. And Jesus is reigning, this idea of the thrones and people being set on the thrones, He's reigning through the church, not through the United States, not through the nation of Israel, but he's reigning through the church now, and he's going to come back visibly at some point, and that's going to be be the end. So here's a picture. You see the cross, and there's this sort of symbolic millennium that just fills that space, and then at the end is the second coming of Jesus and the last judgment. Um, So awe is sort of a negation, and it's basically saying there is no millennium. And this is sort of a pushback view against those who think there really is going to be a millennium, a thousand years or a certain period of time. And they're saying, no, it's not really like that. It's just we're in it now, and it's all this symbolic thing. Um, People who hold to this view believe it. It's not because they don't believe the Bible. It's because they look at Revelation and they see a lot of symbolic things. They see a lot of things that we don't necessarily need to take exactly word for word literally, which we would agree with that. I would agree with that. But I think they're wrong uh, in this position. We'll talk about why. Second position is called the post-millennial position. This is the view that says the millennium is going to come gradually as the world becomes more and more Christian. And then Jesus is going to return at the end of the millennium. So the church is going to grow, it's going to have more influence on society, life and culture. Is just All of it's going to sort of get better and better and better and more and more Christian. And that sort of is in this empty spot. And then it's going to get so good that we just sort of slide into the millennium. And I don't know exactly how good it has to be, but it's going to get so good. All of a sudden now we're in the millennium. And the church is going to reign and we're going to have power and the world is going to be this great godly place and all this fine stuff. And then at the end of that, Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be a judgment. And this is probably the the least held view today of anybody. These people would look at the parables of Jesus. You can think about the parables where Jesus says the kingdom is like a little bit of leaven and it spreads through the whole thing until it's all leavened. And they say, that's kind of how it works, right? Plant the church here in the world, and it's just going to spread and be slow. It's going to take a long time. But sooner or later, it's just going to sort of spread throughout the whole earth and Christianize 
everything. This was kind of a popular view like between the Civil War, after the Civil War, up until the World Wars. Like during the Civil War, life was terrible, so nobody really thought anything's getting better. But then the Civil War ended, and people, you know, there's a lot of technological advances, and there's a lot of Christian people in government at that point, leading our, our country at different levels, and people kind of looked around and said, hey, we're kind of on the, on the upward tick here. We're, things are getting better all the time, and we're making progress. And then you got a couple of world wars that remind you how rotten we all are and how rotten the world is, and everybody says, I don't think the world's just going to get so good that it becomes you know, totally Christian. So not a lot of folks hold to this view. Third view, premillennial position. It says Jesus is going to come back before the millennium, and then he's going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years is going to be the final judgment. So this is the pre-millennial position. And we'll put the picture up here so you can see this one. You see the cross, and then you've got this church age. You've got a period of tribulation right here. And then there's going to be the second coming of Jesus. Jesus returns visibly, physically to the earth. And you've got the millennium while he's reigning, really is reigning on the earth. Jesus Second coming, on the earth, reigning, giving authority to his people, reigning over the cosmos. And then you got the last judgment and you would usher in the, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? The debate on this last position, the premillennial position, concerns the tribulation. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on it because I just don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But you have probably heard this idea of a rapture. And there's a question of, are we going to get snatched out of here and raptured before the tribulation? Or are we going to be here through the tribulation? And so you can see this dispensational position down at the bottom says, look, there's a rapture, then the tribulation, then Jesus comes back again. They call it the second time, but it's really kind of like the third time because he came back to gather his people. And they don't say it that way, but in my mind it seems kind of strange. And then there's the millennium where Jesus is reigning. And the top view says, no, we're all here for the tribulation, and then Jesus comes back, and then we, we jump into the millennium. And uh, if I was a betting man, okay, and you gave me these three, really four views, and you said, put your money on these four views, and you go to Vegas and take the odds and whatever, and you gave me 100 bucks, I'd put 98 bucks on that view right there. That's what I think it is. I think that makes the best sense of the scripture. And I'd put two bucks on the amillennial position, just as a little hedge, just in case. I don't think it's right, but of all the other three, I think it's the most convincing when I read about it and, uh, and I, I listen to those theologians. And we can disagree on that uh, issue of the tribulation and will we be here or not, but those are the three basic positions. Here's what you really need to understand, okay? However you want to sort this out on who's going to be around and the order of events, there is going to be a period of tribulation at the end that intensifies. Jesus talks about that. And it's going to be rotten. It's going to be really bad. And at some point, he is going to come back and gather his people to himself. And at some point, I think you have to make sense of the fact that Jesus is going to reign on this earth. There's a whole bunch of Old Testament promises and New Testament promises that really seem to indicate Jesus is going to reign on this earth. And then the end of all things is going to come after that. So the last thing I'll throw at you here is this. There are many passages that suggest Jesus will reign on the earth with his people even while evil exists on the earth. This fits with either of the, the premillennial positions, but especially the historic premillennial position. I think it fits well. Um, it's a strange thing when you read what the Bible has to say about this millennial reign that... Satan is going to be bound, okay? We read that in Revelation 20. Satan will be bound. That does not mean there will not be wicked things taking place on the earth. You know that because you don't get to blame Satan for all your bad stuff. You're part of the problem. People are still going to be here during this time. And the biblical idea is that there's going to be a rule. And it's not just this kindly rule, but it is a kingly rule by force. And uh, let's just look at a few of these verses so you get the idea of this. Look at Isaiah 11, Old Testament. Isaiah 11. 
We'll start in verse 2. Spirit of the Lord. No, we'll start in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Disputes. Talking about disputes. If there's a dispute, somebody's got to be in the wrong. There's got to be some sort of conflict involved in that. It's not just all easy going, easy breezy. So he's deciding disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of the lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion fattened calf together. The little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze. That their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand in the adder's den. They shall, not, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I think that's a biblical description of the millennium that Revelation is talking about. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 in the New Testament. Verse 20 says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. As by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, so he's returning, those who belong to Christ will experience this resurrection. Christ has been raised. He's the firstfruits. Then at his coming... We're going to experience this resurrection because we died in Adam and were raised in Christ. So it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. I think that's a description of this period of the millennium. And you can call it a real thousand years or a figurative, figurative thousand years, whatever you want to call it. But he's really reigning on the earth and he's, he's subjugating his enemies to his authority. Uh, other passages. Look at Revelation 3.21. We'll just look at one more. Revelation 3.21. He's talking to the church in Laodicea and he says, To the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And you see that in several of these letters to the churches, this idea that you're going to get to rule with me. I'm going to share my authority with you during this period where I'm reigning over the, the, the earth and the cosmos. Uh, number four, just a couple of more ideas, things that are not so much debatable. Jesus will return to judge the world, bring his people to glory, and make all things new. A lot's going to happen. He's going to judge the world. He's going to bring his people into glory. And he's going to make all things new. Look at Romans 8. We're going to read Romans 8. That is sort of the forward-looking hope. And then we're going to read the fulfillment of it. Forward-looking, of course, in Revelation 21. Romans 8, starting in verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know, he keeps talking about the whole creation. He says it again. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the whole creation, but we ourselves, 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He's saying all that God has made, the whole creation, the whole cosmos is just waiting and groaning and anticipating this day when Christ returns and sets everything free from the bondage that it's been subjected to through Adam's sin. And you see the fulfillment of that in Revelation 21. It's one of the great, great, great passages of the Bible. It's a passage I always try to read at a funeral service because I love the hope that it offers. Revelation 21, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And the holy city, the new Jerusalem, was coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things. Not just you, but all. All things, a new heaven and a new earth where things function and work and operate and you experience life as God intended all of those things to happen. Also, he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. To the thirsty, I'll give the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Paul talked about adoption. We're waiting for this adoption. And John says, here it is. We're going to be adopted as his sons. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So we're going to have judgment, people bringing into, being brought into glory, and all things being made new. And the last idea is this. You've got to mention this. When Christ returns, he will defeat Satan forever. We've already read that in Revelation 20. So let's move to the question, why do I need to know about the parousia? Why do I need to know about the return of Christ? It's not just something that you need to know so you can argue and win debates, but it's an important biblical doctrine to establish your faith. So number one, Jesus taught about his return to comfort his people. It's at least one of the things Jesus had in mind when he talked about his return, is he wanted to comfort his friends So look at John 14. There's a lot of important things in John 14. And sometimes we use those things just to argue and to prove that we're right and other people are wrong. And sometimes we are right and other people are wrong. And it's fine to do that. I just want you to miss that when Jesus initially said what he said in John 14, it wasn't because he was in some theological debate with a you know, somebody who disagreed with him is he's trying to comfort his friends. And he says this in John 14, 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And he's talking about his return to say, don't be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. So this doctrine ought to be a comforting doctrine. Number two, the fact that he's coming back and the manner in which he will come back ought to change the way that we live. When you read about he's coming back to this earth, he's really coming back. And you read about what it's going to be like when he comes back. The power, the glory, the awesomeness, the display, the wrath, the anger, all of it. It ought to change the way that you live today. And a great example of that is Titus chapter 2. Look at Titus 2. Titus is right after 2 Timothy, right before Philemon and Hebrews. Titus 2 verse 11 says, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. That's talking about Jesus coming to the earth. 
is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. What's the blessed hope? It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for that. We're waiting for him to appear in all of his glory. And he gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. When you wrap your mind around this idea that Jesus, Jesus has come and he's died for you and he's redeemed you and he's purchased you and he's coming back for you, it changes the way you live now and it makes you the kind of person who, according to Titus, is zealous, or according to Paul writing to Titus, is zealous for good works. So it changes the way we live. Number three, we anticipate his return because it will lead to a homecoming for God's people. And we won't look at Philippians 3.20 again. We read it earlier. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, we live now in a place that is really not our home, and we shouldn't be too comfortable here. We should never feel too comfortable here. We should always feel a little bit out of place here, like we're strangers, or we're exiles, or we're aliens, as Peter talks about it. But our home and our citizenship is in heaven, and we're waiting for Jesus to come and to take us home. Number four, beware of those who claim to know the time of Christ's return. Beware, beware, beware. Listen, for thousands of years, people have been saying they know when Jesus is coming back. For thousands of years. Now, that doesn't mean that the next person you hear say, I know when Jesus is coming back is wrong. Because they could be the one that's right. But it just means you need to be really careful. And you don't need to get wound up. And you probably don't need to spend a whole lot of money on prophecy books and dates and time charts and conferences and things like that. And when you listen to even sometimes very popular, even some preachers that I like, that I think are good teachers, good Bible teachers, sometimes they get so caught up in, well, this moon cycle is coming up or this eclipse is coming up or this that is coming up and I just want to say do you think that's the first eclipse that's happened in the last 2,000 years do you think that's the first time there's been a super moon in the last 2,000 years like take a breath and before you open your mouth and start telling everybody you know why don't you just look back at the long line of people who have been wrong and realize that you might just be the next guy or gal in that line so be very careful about that stuff Uh, Number five, the hope of Christ's return should give comfort to those who suffer. And I already said that it should comfort his people, but the emphasis here is on those who are suffering. It should give comfort. And look at Revelation 6. Revelation 6. This is a vision of heaven. There's some seals being opened. You can make of that what you want. There's a fifth seal opened in verse 9. And John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. So he's got this vision of heaven and he sees people who have died simply because they were Christians. They're martyrs. Souls of those who have been slain. And they cried out, verse 10, with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And you know from what we've talked about that this judgment is going to take place when Jesus returns. So you've got people in heaven saying, crying out with a loud voice, how much longer till Jesus goes back and takes care of those people? And the answer is, they're given a white robe and they're told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Meaning just a little bit longer not that's a mean thing for you to pray you shouldn't be so spiteful and hateful and you're supposed to love your enemies but it's it's going to happen and you just need to wait and that ought to comfort those people whether they're on the eternity side of the suffering or on the suffering suffering uh, the suffering side of the suffering number six our resurrection is tied to Christ's return you can look about uh, look up the verses about that in 1 Corinthians 15, 
And one last idea, number seven, we should long for Christ's return. And that's how the Bible ends in the book of Revelation. Revelation twenty two twenty. he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. It ends with this hope that Christ is going to come back. It ought to be something that we long for. So let me mention a few books, and we're going to end by praying like we always do. Two books. Um, I have mentioned these books, one of these two or both of these books, every single night through this study. And they're short books, and they're easy to read. One is called Christian Beliefs, and one is called Concise Theology. And these are great little cheap reference books that I use all the time. When I'm studying or I'm preparing a lesson or somebody asks me a question and maybe I have an idea of the answer but I want to go and make sure I'm on the right track and find some verses, these are great books to pull up. Uh, The one that is called Christian Beliefs has 20 different doctrines in it. Um, Not exactly the 20 that we've followed in this series but close. And this other one by Packer, uh, he doesn't have his chapters numbered but he's got like 60 or 70 or so different topics and it's just one to two page answers on on different things and they're super helpful books if you are interested in reading about the return of Christ and uh, studying more about it the Bible scholar who has helped me more than anybody else is a guy named George Ladd and he's written several different books but I just I listed two short ones one is called the blessed hope Uh, It's talking about the return of Jesus, and one's called The Gospel of the Kingdom, uh, which really is about the return of Jesus. And they have helped shape my thinking about the Bible and what the New Testament is saying and what it's talking about and how you fit all these passages together. He's helped me to fit that together in my brain more than anybody else. So there's a few recommendations if you like to read.